Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by two friends, Adele Karai and Michael Zoni. They have just edited this terrific volume, The China Questions 2, Critical Insights into U.S.-China Relations. I've just finished it, and it is fair to say this is a terrific volume. It absolutely covers the span of U.S.-China relations in a very readable manner. So I compliment both of you and the third editor, who's not with us today, Jennifer Rudolph, for, for editing this terrific volume. Adele is a professor at NYU Shanghai. Michael is a professor of history at um, Harvard University, a place where I was forced to spend seven years. Let me start, you know, and it, this is, it's just, it's a must read. I think for our audience, folks who are interested in US-China relations, it's a must read. I also was very pleased to see that it's it's dedicated to all of our friends, mentor, teacher, Ezra Vogel. And I also note that we're recording this program the day before, I believe you're gonna hold a uh, remembrance of Ezra in Cambridge, which is, which is terrific. Uh, the authors of the book are really a who's who of, of China scholars in the United States. I note that it includes 18 members of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, which of course includes uh, Professor Zoni. Um, it has five former board members, some current board members, and three participants in our track two dialogues. All of them, as you two, are our, our leading experts in US-China relations. The book kind of reads, I mean, I think back to kind of my course with Jim Thompson, who you two were too young to, to have studied with, but I did. That's where I first started studying US-China relations. Uh, it reads almost like a textbook for a course in US-China relations. Was that your intent? Who is the audience? And tell us briefly, what compelled you to write the book? I'll start with Adele. Hi, thanks for having uh, having us here today. And so the key intent for, for the book was to inform uh, the broader public about various aspects of US-China relations from different perspectives based uh, on uh, academic scholars that have spent a lot of years studying those issues and that had knowledge about uh, China-US relations, different aspects of US-China relations. And uh, we wanted to make this knowledge accessible to the broader public, especially in the context we live in, very politicized uh, uh, discourses of US-China relations, this Cold War mentality that uh, basically penetrates all debates about US-China relations. We wanted to provide a more nuanced accounts, more informed, evidence-based, research-based accounts. Michael, what? Sure, I'll follow up. Well, Steve, first of all, I'm a little offended that you think it reads like a textbook. That's exactly what we don't want it to read like. The, the, in the sense that what we asked people to do here, and this follows from the model of the China Questions 1, which Jennifer Rudolph and I edited for in honor of the Fairbank Center's 60th anniversary. The idea is that we ask academics who are used to writing for a narrower 
audience, often uh, an audience of fellow academics or for policymakers, to take everything they have learned over the decades that they have been studying and boil it down into an easily accessible short essay on a question that they think Americans today should know about in regards to the bilateral relationship. And I just want to follow up on one thing that, that Adele said, which is that we're at a moment where the US-China relationship, I think it's safe to say, is deteriorating. It's, it's perhaps in crisis. We don't see an obvious way forward. There's plenty of bad information about China out there, regardless of where you see the relationship headed. Surely people can agree that the more we know about China, the more informed our policy decisions will be, and the more informed the input of ordinary folk on their governments will be. So even at a moment where China is being demonized, where it's easy to look for the negative, academics have a role to play by taking all of the work that they've done and presenting it in a way that can help shape public discourse. I was thinking of the modern trans, the, the, the modern, the the great tradition and the modern transformation, the Fairbank textbooks, which actually- This book's an easier read. It's an easier read, I agree. <laughs> I, that might scare a lot of people off, but it, it is, it's a remarkably easy read and, and all of the essays are similar uh, length and all quite short and very, very readable. As you said, Michael, you asked authors to kind of pick the topics. Adele, is is that, did I read that right? Did I hear that right? And if that's what you, was the approach, what topics did you leave out as a result? So it was more of a dynamic and organic process. As editors, we spend a lot of time thinking about the themes, key questions, and authors. Then we approached the authors, and we often suggested a question. But then the question was, uh, you know, was a dynamic process. So maybe the question was uh, later reformulated. And I think we did a quite, quite a good job in being comprehensive with the question that we cover. But of course, it is impossible to cover everything, especially uh, at the speed new global events uh, are unfolding. Think about the pandemic and uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, for instance, at the beginning, we didn't have uh, a chapter on Russia. We added it before the war, and then the chapter was further revised uh, when the war uh, happened. And so we have to keep in mind that, so we hope that this book will have uh, a long shelf life and that the format will be a model for future volumes, but we're also aware that the US-China relationship is extremely dynamic and in the making or remaking, especially now. But we hope we capture a lot of different aspects. One chapter that is missing, I think, is the reverse of what Richard has did. And so how is China policy toward the uh, US made? But I think that is a million dollar question uh, as the process is quite uh, opaque. But there are also other, other aspects we didn't cover. But I think overall, we did a great job in being comprehensive and having a broad range of authors as well. Of course, we missed some great author, but we, we did a pretty good job overall. Michael, what do you think was left out? I'll, I'll just add that if you want to know what topics were left out, you only have to check out our social media feed because we're already hearing which topics we 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 left out. Um, it is it is a, a, a selective uh, process. Uh, two quick comments. One is that I think we we uh, we think that this series is probably worth extending um, because to understand China, there's more than simply the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, we might think about China's role in the world. We might think about domestic developments in China. So part of the rationale was to leave space for a future volume. Uh, and then another, another, uh, uh, another factor is that 
we really um, were looking to celebrate and make use of a new generation of China experts in the United States and around the world. And you've already pointed out the large number of PIP uh, public intellectual program participants. One of the factors that shaped our choices was getting the very diverse set of voices out there that is now available that perhaps may not have been available uh, in, in, in the past. So like Adele, I think we did a decent job. We, we, um, there, there are topics that could be covered. We may cover them in the future. My suggestion would be do one on the effect of American investment in China on the communities in which Americans invested and the other way also, Chinese investment in America and the effect on the communities in which the Chinese invested. Why were there no footnotes? Because we wanted to be as direct as possible and simple. Um, also because the author that we invited are already leading experts uh, that knows what they're talking about. And we didn't want to add further distraction between the text uh, and the readers. But we also compiled a reading list or we're in the phase of compiling a reading list that will be soon available online if you need extra readings. And people are always welcome to check the webpage of the authors to find more books and articles that uh, these authors uh, have written. Michael, you want to add anything on nope, that? that's fine. Um, let me talk about the introduction somewhat. Obviously, that's the part that, that the three editors did write. Um, the introduction is kind of neutral about whether constructive engagement policy was intended to bring about political liberalization and democratization of China. Do you think it was, Michael? Well, Steve, I mean, we should really be asking you this question because you were present at the creation in the way that neither Adele nor I was. Um, so this idea that constructive engagement was supposed to turn China democratic and, and therefore engagement has been a failure has been circulating a lot in America since uh, uh, an article by Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner in Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago. Um, at a certain very basic level, Clearly, it was not. I mean, we go back and look at Nixon and, and Kissinger and their motivations. Engaging China was about uh, countering the Soviet Union. And in that sense, uh, in the medium term, it was surely a great success. But even as China moved into the era of reform and opening up in the 70s and 80s, and the, the issue came up again and again as the US debated its policy, there are there's the odd indicator that senior leaders thought that uh, this could bring about political change in China. But by far the more powerful voice was, and the more consistent voice was the one that said, better to have China inside the international system than outside the international system. I think on those grounds, constructive engagement was a success. The facts speak for themselves. The extraordinary uh, uh, improvement in the standard of living of ordinary Chinese people, another testimony of the success of the policy. That does not mean the policy can go on forever. We can talk for a moment about whether constructive engagement is the right policy going forward. But I think we, we, we may come across as neutral, but our consensus is that constructive engagement, calling constructive engagement a failure because China is not a liberal democracy today, uh, that's, that's distorting history. Yes, certainly when I was in the State Department, there was no document that I ever saw that suggested that the establishment of diplomatic relations 
that constructive engagement was intended to democratize China. And President Carter, who I was in the State Department during his term, uh, who was incredibly strong on human rights, did not have that as one of his goals. Um, you say, you write, um, Adele, no nation has done more in the last half century than the United States to insist China's rise in global integration. When I read that sentence, I wondered, shouldn't it be China has done more than any other nation? Yeah, um, and uh, uh, it's true, I think, uh, uh, even if we look now at the coupling, this is a this is an issue because uh, the U.S. has also benefited immensely from uh, the uh, integration of China within the international system, uh, providing a lot of cheap goods, for instance, uh, talents, minds uh, in uh, in U.S. institutions. So um, I think it's a uh, it's uh, it it goes both ways. They both benefited, and to say that like just uh, the the U.S. Uh, uh, did something like, or, or, or just and China just benefited? It, it, it's uh, kind of unbalanced. Uh, we should have uh, the full picture here. Um, yeah, I agree. Well, in our in our defense, though, we say no other country has done more to help China, and I think that's actually that's actually true. Uh, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't say that China's not doesn't have primary responsibility. Um, I wrote this sentence, so I'm going to defend it just for a minute. The uh, I think the the idea here, and of course here we are, um, we have an eye also to our audience in China, who I think will read this book carefully. Um, we will not be able to publish an authorized Chinese translation, but we will make, as we did with the China Questions One, an informal China uh, an informal translation available freely on on the online. Um, I think the point to make here is that if we look at the last forty years. As some, some Chinese are now saying, some people in China are now saying, this has just been a long-term uh, uh, episode of the US seeking to contain China, to keep China down, to stop China's rise. That again, just does not square with the historical facts. Yes, yes. I, I'm partly tongue in cheek with that question, but I'm always, when, when, when um, people say, what, what is the greatest threat to China? You know, often the Chinese say the United States. I said, no, the greatest threat to China is China. So it, it that's, was kind of the lead up for that question. Um, you talk about the, Adele, you talk about the abandonment of, T, of, TT, of TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, do you think that was a lethal blow to American economic leadership in Asia? I think it was a big mistake, and the U.S. has uh, lost both uh, hard economic power, uh, but also soft power of setting new norms. Uh, and I think the abandonment of the TPP not only harmed the U.S. economy, but uh, the U.S. also missed the chance to shape the rules uh, governing trade in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, while China, for instance, already at the center geographically of uh, Asian region and also economically, and it can be sure to have significant say in the region, also from a norm perspective, setting standards, the TPP would have ensured the United States to have a prominent seat uh, at the table of the negotiation where those rules uh, were made. Uh, moreover, if the TPP um, uh, was thought by the US as a useful tool to counter China's geopolitical influence, uh, now that the US is out and that China has applied to join the updated version of the TPP, the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, the US, I think, has also uh, uh, to face a geopolitical loss. So there are many losses, I think, from uh, 
the U.S. abandoning the TPP. Adele, uh, the, you, you also write in the intro about the, the 2017 national security strategy labels China a revision, labeled China a revisionist power and peer competitor. Do you think, was that right? So I do not think that the national security strategy characterization of China as a revisionist powers is either accurate or helpful. A revisionist power in international relations theory is a power whose objective is to change or put an end to the current system. Uh, as many chapters of the books uh, have discussed, China has benefited tremendously uh, from the current international uh, legal and economic system. Uh, and it is in its, in its interest to preserve it as much as it can and just make a little adjustment uh, and little transformation to make the international system more accommodating uh, to China rise. But that's, uh, that's far from being uh, uh, leveled as a fully-fledged revisionist power uh, that try to counter or change, put an end uh, the, uh, the current international system. And I think that the chapter of Ian Johnson is China trying to undermine the liberal order provides an evidence-based answer to the question of whether China is a revisionist power. It shows how simplistic it is to characterize China as a, as a revisionist power, and that if we divide international order into a different set of orders, then the US is more a revisionist power than China. Uh, but then, if, uh, uh, then we also have to see whether China efforts to change the order is effective. And I think in some chapters, like the one of Naima Green, really, uh, we can see that even if China has put an effort in changing things, like improving the, its image in the US, it is quite unclear whether that is successful. So, you know, there is intent, but also effectiveness of changing orders of the international order. And uh, on the peer competitor, I think that China can be now considered as a peer competitor, although I wish we were at a point where the national security strategy defined China as a peer partner, but clearly we are not there. Uh, China, the world's second largest economy, as is no longer producing cheap t-shirts, uh, and now it is the, large, the, the leader in uh, technology, uh, artificial intelligence, green energy, and so forth. Um, and in many sectors before, China used to be uh, in synergy with the U.S. It helped the uh, U.S. to uh, offshore production, uh, to produce these uh, cheap goods, uh, but now it's becoming a competitor in uh, technology, artificial intelligence, and uh, robotics. Um, but the peer aspect, I'm still not uh, completely sure because China is still a developing country in some ways to the unbalanced and the unsustainable uh, development. And I think the U.S. has still many advantages over China. And in this sense, I think they're not fully peer uh, competitor, but definitely competitor. There was a bill, I think Senator Sullivan proposed a bill that for U.S. law, we cannot consider China a developing country. Um, I think that's an amendment to some bill that was proposed yesterday. The great irony for me of calling China a revisionist power was just at the time we had we, the, the Trump administration was uh, re revoking the agreement to join the Paris Accords withdrawing from the Iranian agreement, ending its participation in the Human Rights Commission, and on and on and on. Who was the revisionist power, I asked, when that came on? Um, one more question on the introduction, which is, you write, some observers were surprised that there was no formal break with the Trump administration's policy when the Biden administration 
Biden administration took over. But in reality, there was almost no possibility of a reset. There is a broad bipartisan consensus that the old policy of constructive engagement has failed. Michael, do you agree with both those assertions? Well, we wrote them. Yes, we agree with them. The uh, let me let me answer in two ways. Uh, first of all, um, the 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 aim in that in that uh, paragraph was to convey that um, the deterioration in the bilateral relationship is not something that we can just lay at the feet of a single presidential administration. There are many things we can blame that administration for, but the collapse of the relationship is is not it. Um, for one thing, of course. There are doing it, framing it in that way is to absolve China of any responsibility for the deterioration. And there are a host of, of, of factors, we could talk about some of them, why uh, the relationship, the deterioration relationship has a lot to do with China's own behavior. Um, the the uh, situation in Xinjiang for being just being just one example, but there are but there are but there are many others. Um, so that's one reason why there can't, wouldn't have been, we don't think there would have been a, a direct break, uh, a, a direct reset. The other is domestic politics in the United States. There is no, um, there is no domestic constituency, as far as we can tell, that supports the revival of our old relationship with China, not the foreign policy community, not the uh, uh, security community, not business, not industry, uh, not demand on the, the, the person on the street. Um, and so if only in terms of responding to domestic political imperatives, there was very little possibility we think of going back to business uh, as, as usual. Um, I've already talked about the ways in which I think framing constructive engagement as a failure historically is not in accord with the facts. The real question is whether the policies that evolved in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s work for the present. And that's the third reason why there was no possibility of a reset is uh, the United States needs a new framework. Mm -hmm. They didn't cut, I, I would argue that there are constituencies that still believe in constructive engagement and that there actually was a constituency for a reset uh, I think to some degree, those constituencies are voiceless. I would argue oh. that poor Americans, lower income Americans are disadvantaged by this policy. The tariffs and expenditures by the military industrial complex reduce money that we have for social programs, for education, for other things. So that's a, that's a great point. Wouldn't argue with that. Dis disproportionately affect poor people. So I, I would argue the Biden administration actually on January 20th lost uh, an opportunity to at least on the economic side have some form of ending the tariffs, re rescinding the tariffs back to January 20th, 2017. So I'm not, um, and I believe it's, it's, it's very voiceless. I also, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, AOC and others actually believe we need to have, a, oddly enough, a more balanced policy, uh, which doesn't punish lower income Americans. So it's- That's it's, an excellent point. I don't disagree with you there. Yeah. Um, 
let's go into the some of the chapters. Even though you edited the chapters, you didn't you didn't write them. So I'll forgive you if you want to pass on some of these. John Pomfret writes: True to form, some old China hands in the United States internalized China's position. In July 2019, a group of scholars and former government officials published an open letter titled China is Not an Enemy. Now, full disclosure, I signed that letter. Uh, Ezra Vogel was one of the primary drafters of this letter, and I was a signatory. In fact, Ezra brought me into it. Is Pomfret right? Well, I'm going to answer this question, Adele, if that's okay, because I was a signatory too. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and so much as I admire the, the chutzpah of John Pomfret for you know, taking on the editor of the book, um, I don't know, had he even read the letter? I mean, you and I both read the letter carefully before we signed it. I looked at it again the other day. What do we say in that letter? China's behavior is a big challenge to the United States, but we don't think China is an existential enemy that we need to confront in every sphere. The key is that we work together with our allies to respond to the China challenge. Uh, that is, so two points, that is the right policy still. And secondly, that is not internalizing China's position. Uh, the, the, the Chinese leadership would find that letter quite objectionable, despite the headline, China is not an enemy. So no, uh, I'll say it flat out, Pomfret is not right. Good, I like that, since we were all signatories. Um, Adele, Ryan, Ryan Haas writes, by the same token, it is dangerous to relinquish China decision-making entirely to prevailing political winds. Has this happened? Is that what we're basically living with today? Everybody talks about the bipartisan consensus and therefore you must do X, Y, and Z, but they don't talk about what's right for the American people. I have been stunned, as you can tell from this interview, that the Biden administration has not ended the Trump tariffs. How do you explain this? So I believe that we are witnessing a sort of domestication of foreign policy. And I think this is true not only in the US, but also in Europe and China. Uh, foreign policy is increasingly dictated by domestic politics rather than by a set of general objectives that should drive in their own terms the relationship with other country for the good of the country and the people uh, of the country, uh, regardless of where the prevailing political winds uh, blow. Um, and I think this uh, is a bit of a problem. I think it has been so politicized, uh, the China threat uh, that is ingrained uh, within uh, uh, the, the, the political winds, whatever, whatever winds, uh, wherever it blows, it's already ingrained. And I think uh, a good chapter is the one of Chen Xinpan that um, in his wise China America's favorite threat discusses the self-fulfilling prophecy of the China threat that has to do more with uh, how America sees itself than the real China. And of course, he recognized there are real issues with China, but then a lot of the perception that also dictates foreign policy has to do with the identity of America, how America uh, defines itself, sees itself. Uh, and so uh, given this domestication of the uh, foreign policy, I think it would be difficult to uh, move away uh, from, from from this, I mean, unless we, we set up a set of like standards again, like we, we start making again uh, proper foreign policy. Yeah. 
for the next volume, there's a very interesting piece, and he would update it, written by Michael Swain on something called thread inflation and why this occurs and talks about different constituencies and why it's quite natural that it occurs. Um, Michael, let's talk about Hong Kong briefly. Denise Ho and Jeffrey Wasserstrom write a compelling chapter on why Americans should care about Hong Kong, and it's, it's great. But do you think they should have included Hong Kong LegCo's rejection of the National People's Congress proposal, and I think it was about 2015, to have direct elections by the people of Hong Kong, of the chief executive, with the nominations controlled by this committee of 1,200 that, that's basically folks who are appointed by Beijing? Uh, well, I'm not a Hong Kong expert, and so I, I, uh, I hesitate to say too much. I will say that one of the things that the very best chapters, and this certainly is one of them, does is to move beyond the noise of immediate decisions of the, new, the news of the day, or in this case, the news of a couple of years ago, and ask, what are, the, what are the things that really matter in this issue? So one implication of, um, uh, of, of the, the, the question, I guess, is that to what extent, to what extent uh, are the people of Hong Kong responsible for their own fate? That is to say, did a series of bad decisions by Hong Kong's leaders lead ultimately to the situation we see in Hong Kong today? Um, I'm agnostic on that point. What I will say is that um, regardless of whether the current situation in Hong Kong uh, is something that the people of Hong Kong brought upon themselves or uh, a legacy of the way the British left or of the changing vision uh, of national unity coming from Beijing, Ho and Wasserstrom's point is really that we need to think about Hong Kong and our relationship to Hong Kong in terms of the values we espouse and how best to support those values in our engagement, both with Hong Kong itself and with uh, uh, Hong Kong, with Beijing in relation to Hong Kong. So I guess the simple answer to your question, Steve, is I don't actually think it matters uh, because in the long run, uh, this is the situation that Hong Kong finds itself in. Uh, we, we are called upon to, to respond to that. Uh-huh, interesting. Your colleagues, Michael, right? Mark Elliott and Dan Murphy have a great chapter on how American universities should engage. And I assume you agree with their conclusions. And I urge all our listeners to go and read that chapter. But my question is, are the Chinese students now voting with their feet and not coming to the United States? Has the damage already been done? Well, I wish... I, I wish we could answer that question. One of the challenging things about the current moment in US-China relations is how much we are out of sync with the rest of the world, which is recovering from the pandemic, which is looking towards a, a new normalcy. So our student numbers from um, other parts of the world are back to pre-pandemic norms. In China, it's not, it's not yet the case. It's a little early to stay um, I would also add that Mark and Dan's chapter is great. It reads nicely with Mary Gallagher's chapter on whether Confucius Institutes belong in the United States, also with Maggie Lewis's chapter on intellectual property rights. One of the things that, that, uh, that all four chapters share and other chapters share 
is a sense that in this new era of US-China relations, we need to acknowledge that there are risks to the relationship. We need to acknowledge that there are uh, uh, the risks of, international, of, of intellectual property theft in our industry and on our campuses, but that we need to remain open and find ways to address those risks. In other words, that closure is bad for the United States. Um, so I very much hope that it's not too late. Chinese students, Chinese scholars have enriched the American institutions. They've enriched my life. They've enriched the lives of my colleagues. They've enriched the lives of our communities. Um, I hope that, that we can get past this. Uh, it's too early to tell. And, and it's a cry for balancing the costs and the benefits. You know, Indeed. sometimes the, the costs of these actions far exceed any benefits that we're going to achieve. We're out of time, so let me just ask one final question um, for both of you, uh, which is President Xi and President Biden are likely to meet on the, on the sidelines of the G20 in Indonesia and possibly even again uh, in Bangkok on the sidelines of the APEC meeting. Based on your book and your experience, you've got 60 seconds or 90 seconds to tell uh, Biden and Xi something. What do you want to tell them? Adele? So I think that one of the key issues now between uh, US and China is a lack of trust uh, that is also linked to the lack uh, of dialogue and formal and informal exchanges. So this is a big loss right now for the for US-China relations because, yeah, you can have this very uh, hard uh, stance on uh, China uh, officially, but then you still have a very uh, lively uh, substratum of people that maintains this connection and relationship, but this is uh, cut off. Besides like Chinese students coming to America, China borders are still are, are still sealed. Uh, diplomats also avoid seeing uh, other officials. And so I think uh, one key, um, one top priority would be to reestablish this uh, dialogue uh, through multi-track diplomacy, um, education, students, business people. Uh, yeah, that I think will be the, the, the key point. I, I will beg both of them, please open Chinese border. I want to go to China. <laughs> <laughs> Michael. Uh, totally agree with Adele uh, always, but especially the day before we celebrate the life of Ezra Vogel, who was so committed to these exchanges. Two uh, more specific points to follow up. We need to find a new modus vivendi for Taiwan, by which I mean we need to find a way to insulate Taiwan from the larger relationship. And similarly, we need to find new ways to ensure that immediate bilateral tensions don't overwhelm the long-term shared interests, global public health, and above all, climate. In other words, we need to find new ways to keep the broader bilateral relationship insulated from the issues of the day. This that's why you need the, sorry, can I say something? That's why you need the foreign policy that is detached from all these uh, winds, uh, right? You need something consistent that uh, will last for years, uh, for years to come, not just, yeah. Not the political winds of the day, W-I-N-D-S, yes. yes. This conversation was intended just to give you a sense of what is in this terrific book. It is a must read. If you're interested in US-China relations, go out, 
and buy it now. Adele, Michael, thank you so much for writing, editing the book and for giving so generously of your time today. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.